All right, church, um, join me. We're going to continue in Acts 16. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be looking at Acts 16, verse 19, and going through verse 30. Acts 16, 19. But when her owners saw that their hope for gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are here. And the jailer called for lights, and rushing in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And this is God's word. All right. Are we awake tonight? <laughs> yeah. No. Coffee got out late. We need setup help, guys. Coffee got out late. <laughs> All right. We are here, though, right? You guys good? This week, um, Naomi and I went to a conference, went to a prayer conference in Colorado Springs. It was really encouraging. It's really refreshing. Just kind of wanted to share a couple things about that before I get into the passage. It actually perfectly ties into our passage. But um, the ministry that we went that hosted this conference is called 24-7 Prayer. They're originally based in the UK. Anybody familiar with them? Um, so they have, they put together an app called Lectio 365. Anybody? It's like, it's a really common Bible app. Um, they've been going for over 24 years now, um, essentially equipping communities and churches with tools and resources to develop as communities of prayer. And so they've been going, they're in 77 different countries, just supporting communities and teaching them how to pray. And, um, I mean, they have done everything from work with the Vatican to, like, the hyper-charismatic group to, like, every run-of-the-mill church in 77 different countries. And um, just super encouraging to hear all that the Lord is doing through prayer throughout the world. And how God is moving in small ways and in big ways. And he is 
at work when his people pray. Um, one of the practices that they encourage is very similar. So how many of you guys have been doing 4 p.m. prayer? Yeah? So we have, we have this thing we've been doing here where we have an alarm set on our phones and we pray for refuge at 4 p.m. They encourage this practice of three times a day prayer. And I know Nikolai's been doing this thing. Where, and it's not a new thing. This has been happening in the church since the beginning. But morning, midday, and evening prayer. And I just love the structure. I just want to share this. The structure that they do this around in the morning. They encourage you, wake up, pray the Lord's Prayer. Super simple. Pray through the Lord's Prayer a couple times. Let it speak to you. Noonday, midday, stop what you're doing, take a minute, and pray for the lost. Maybe you're at work or wherever you're at, pray for those that you can see around you, and just take a minute to pray for the lost. We, they shared so many stories of people who practice that. Noonday prayer, take a minute, pray for the lost. So shared the story of this guy who had been doing this for weeks, praying for his neighbor. And randomly, after weeks of doing this every day, just praying for his neighbor, his neighbor comes up and asks him, hey, can you tell me about your faith? Unprovoked, just asked him. Those sort of stories. Or another uh, couple that had been doing this praying, they were the only Christians in their family, and they'd been praying for their siblings to come to faith. And after weeks of, of them praying, eventually... Actually, they ended up asking them for prayer, and then there was answers to prayer, and then they ended up coming to faith. So it's just really cool stories of the way the Lord uses this in simple ways. It's not complicated. It's super simple. Then evening prayer centered around gratitude, and just so good just to take a minute in the evening and just reflect and thank the Lord for what he's done in the day. Just good habits, good, good rhythms. We've been discussing, the elders and family meeting that we had several weeks ago now, um, thinking about all that the Lord is doing in this community, all that the Lord is doing and leading us, the, where we're going. And one of the things that we have been emphasizing and wanting to continue to emphasize is prayer. I and mean, that's part of the reason we went out to this conference. And I'm more convinced now that prayer is absolutely essential. I mean, like, obviously it's essential. It's, but prayer is one of those things that, like, we, we take for granted. I think as Christians, like, it, we, we, we almost, as we get into our faith for enough time, it becomes like breathing or something. And sometimes we can forget about it and we can neglect it. But prayer, if... if God is going to do anything, if we are going to do anything worthwhile for the king, if we're going to do anything worthwhile in Sonoma County, if we are going to train and equip and to dis, uh, families to disciple children, if we're going to reach marginalized youth through foster care, like we talked about last week, if we're going to you know, live in real, vibrant community, if we're going to be able to actually effectively reach your coworkers and your friends and your family, we've got to be a people that pray. 
We have to figure this thing out. We have to find a way to be a people built around prayer and worship. And all of those things motivate us and, and send us out into mission. Prayer is not just one of the things we do. It's the thing. It's got to be the center. As we were at this conference this week, I was thinking about the way that we teach through the Bible here. So we, we just march through books of the Bible for the most part. We go kind of verse by verse. And probably months ago, we had planned, I had planned that this was the sermon for tonight, that we would be looking at this passage of Paul and Silas. I'm so, and I was so encouraged this week as I'm thinking about prayer all week, and that is exactly what's happening in this passage. And so th the way it lines up is amazing. I'm just so grateful that the Lord goes before us, that he knows and he plans. As, as structured as it seems that we broke up the book of Acts and we carved out when we're going to preach on each verse, <clears throat> the Lord knew. And he had it foreordained that we would look at this passage tonight. So we're going to jump in. Setting the stage here. Two weeks ago, how many of you guys were here? A couple weeks ago. So we looked at three different stories, three different testimonies of the catalyst people who, got, who began to follow Jesus and became the church plant in Philippi. Three different stories. We looked at uh, three, different or three different people that became the first church plant in Europe. Philippi, we looked at a couple weeks ago, this is a Roman colony in, um, it was the leading city in Macedonia. It was named for Alexander, uh, named for Philip of Macedon. And it was this Roman province that was known for being a little Rome. It was very much Roman. Very much Roman. And our missionaries that we've looked at so far, right, we've got Paul and Silas. They picked up Timothy. And then we assume Luke is with them. So these four now are in Philippi. And they are here to bring the gospel. They're here to plant a church. They show up after receiving that vision of the Macedonian man, remember? When they arrive... There's not even enough Jewish men in the community to have a synagogue. So they end up meeting Lydia, the demon-possessed slave girl, and a Roman jailer. We looked at those three stories. Tonight, we're going to focus on that third story, the Roman jailer. We're going to look at some detail in his story. Okay? Thank you. So as with other stories, the demoniac in, in the book of Mark comes to mind of when demons are cast out of people. Jesus casts out the demons and they sends them to the pig, remember, and the, the economy is completely messed up. Same thing happens here. So these, these guys had taken this girl who was demon-possessed 
and clairvoyant. She was telling the future. And they had monetized it. They were, they were using her ability and monetizing it. And when Paul got irritated, you guys remember the story? He got a little irritated, a little grumpy. And he cast the demon out of this little girl. All of a sudden, they've lost their ability to profit off of her. They've lost their ability to, um, to make money. And so they're angry, and they, they bring false charges against this missionary group. They accuse them of things that are not true. They claim that the missionaries were disturbing the city. They were advocating for unlawful practices. So soon, the whole crowd develops, and they're all stirred up in anger. They start joining in the attack. The magistrates, the, the political officials of the city, encourage them to beat Paul and Silas, to grab rods and to beat them. And it's, it's difficult for us really to imagine really what's happening here. But these guys are getting their, their shirts or their, their clothes got ripped off so that their back was exposed, and they were beaten repeatedly with rods. We left them swollen, lacerated, bleeding, sticky with blood. So much so it would be impossible for these guys to lay down with their backs as destroyed as it was. So they're taken to the jail. They're taken to the jailer, and they are, the jailer's charged to keep, keep them under control. And he takes them to the inner jail, this think dungeon. He takes them to the, the most secure location, and he straps them to the wall. The way the scripture says this, this particular device, the way that they were strapped is that their feet were put in stocks. One of the commentators said this, their feet were placed in wooden stocks, which were likely fastened to the wall. Often, such stocks were used as an instrument of torture. They had a number of holes for the legs, which allowed for severe stretching of the torso and thus created excruciating pain. Beaten, bloodied, mocked, <laughs> falsely, thrown into the dungeon, strapped to the wall in a torture device to be held secure. It's hard for us to even imagine that, right? None of us have experienced, I don't think, any of us have experienced anything like that. All of that makes the deliverance that's about to come all the more dramatic. The, the like, tension's building, right? This is intense, what's happening here. And we know the story. We know how this plays out. Most of us have heard this story since we were young. And remember, earlier in Acts, Peter slept while in prison. But what we see here, Paul and Silas are singing. They're praying. With bloodied, bruised, beaten, sticky backs, strapped in torture devices. They're praying and singing. Verse 25 says, At midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. 
and the prisoners were listening to them. The middle of the night, after being beaten, wouldn't be their last time. Paul's going to have this happen at least two more times. They're in the innermost secure cell. They're fastened to the wall with a torture device. And here we have them singing and praying. They didn't deserve any of this. And yet their heart, they're singing. What are they doing? I don't know, any of you, like you read a story like this and you just like, what is going on? Why? What are they doing? What, what is it? It's not groans in pain. If it was me, I'm just telling you. <laughs> I, if I fall off my bike, right now, I'm like, I'm groaning in pain. These guys were beaten. And it's not groans of pain that the prisoners are listening to. It's songs of joy and prayer. Instead of cursing men and getting angry for being falsely accused and unjustly beaten, what are they doing? They're blessing God. They're singing and praying. I don't know about you. I just I read that and I'm like, I what? This week I, I spent some time on tech support. You guys enjoy calling. Does anybody do tech support? Okay, sorry. Spent some <laughs> spent some time on the phone with tech support. I get grumpy with tech support. Anybody else get grumpy? Irritable? Naomi's like giving me a hard time because I was not being very Christ-like. I was frustrated. Not like this. I have to stop for a second and think, what is going on? What is happening in the hearts of Paul and Silas that's so different than just even my frustration with tech support? Or whatever bothers you and gets you frustrated. Something's different here, right? Instead of pain and frustration, agitation, anger, apparently they're at complete peace. Praying and singing. I want to look at a few things that are at play here, or at least that I think that are at play here. There's a lot going on. And uh, maybe some things that we can learn from this. I think it's extremely relevant for where we're at as a church. Why were these guys able to pray in this sort of worst-case scenario? This is a nightmare situation, and they're praying. I don't know what they were singing. Scripture doesn't say what they were singing or what they were praying. But we do know who they were praying to. We do know the, the direction of their prayer, the object of their affection, the, the object of their song. We do know that. They were communing with Jesus. Their eyes were set and fixed on Jesus. Not on their situation, their pain, their grief, their frustration. All of that goes to the side because there's something else that's way superior. The author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 12, and I think it's exactly what's going on in their prayer. Hebrews 12 
uh, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which, cl which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race which is set before us. Verse 2, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. We don't know what they were praying, but for sure this is the backdrop. This is the theology that allows them to pray in this situation because they know that they are looking to Jesus, who is the perfecter and finisher of their faith, who, as a great role model before them, had endured even the cross, despised its shame. They were looking to Jesus. Paul would say this in Romans chapter 8. This is a longer verse here. Romans 8.31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for, all of us, for, all, for us all, how, how will not, uh, sorry, how will, not, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charges against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he is risen. And he is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. Verse 38. For I am sure, this is, I think, what, what allowed Paul to do this. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angel nor ruler, nor thing present nor thing to come, nor power nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't know what Paul was praying but I know that's the theology that allowed him to endure it. Colossians 3. There's a lot of scripture here, you guys okay? Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Again, that same idea. Look to Jesus. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. There's that theology. There he is. He's not moving. He's seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things of the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ Jesus, Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's the theology that allows you to sing and pray in a worst-case scenario. 
with your eyes set on Jesus, lifted up above the circumstances and situations that so easily bother us. The, the things in your life that so easily cause frustration, maybe even justified. We don't know what they were singing. But when I think about this passage, a psalm comes to mind for me. The Psalm 27. We'll take a little detour. We're going to read this psalm. We don't know what they were singing, but I know it's a very good chance that they were singing a psalm. This was the tradition. These were the hymns of their day. They would open or they would recite the psalms. Psalm 27 is one of these psalms that for me as a young man, teenager really, uh, just gripped me. I remember reading this passage and just, that's it. This is all I want to do. This psalm very likely could have been what they were singing. I have no idea. We don't know. But something like this. Let's read this. Psalm 27. We're going to read the whole thing here. Starting in verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. For whom shall I fear? The Lord is, my strong, is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. Why? Why are they confident? Why could they sing and pray? Verse 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord. One thing I have asked of the Lord. That, that will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all my days. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. As a young man, that, that passage right there got me. David King David, celebrated King David, David with the mighty men, David that had all the adventures that he could ever want to have. One thing he wanted, one thing he was after, one thing that marked his life, that he would gaze on the beauty of the Lord all the days of his life. That he would, in the words of Paul, that he would set his eyes on Jesus. That he would look to Jesus as the author and perfecter of his faith. That he would see the God-man on the throne. That he would gaze on his beauty. Verse 5. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me up high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melodies to the Lord. 
Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart, has, my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your ways, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and breathe out violence. Verse 13. I believe that I will look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. I don't know. For me, maybe this is what I imagine Paul and Silas singing. The theology, the, the reminder, the prayer. They weren't the first ones put in this situation, Paul and Silas. David is articulating a very similar situation. Falsely accused and adversaries pursuing him. Rejected by his family. Definitely isn't the last one, though. Remember also Daniel. You guys remember the story of the three, three that went in the furnace? We looked at this several months ago. Daniel chapter 3. The three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they answer the king and they say this. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, if, if you're going to throw us in the furnace... Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Verse 18. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Worship was at the heart of that matter just like it was for King David and just like it is for Saul and, or for Paul and Silas. They're surrounded. Remember this great cloud of witnesses in Hebrews? Paul and Silas are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, these, these stories throughout history of men and women who have done just like they are, beaten, falsely accused, and yet setting their eyes off their circumstances and situations, looking upon the throne room, fixing their eyes on Jesus. He is the one thing that matters. He's the, the object of our affection. He's the vision that we need. It's all about Jesus. What gave them fortitude to pray and to worship in the midst of way worse situations than you or I will ever find ourselves in, likely. They had a vision of Jesus. They were captivated by a picture, an idea, a theology, a concept, an experience with the living God. 
Can you imagine Paul remembering the encounter he had on Damascus, remembering how God had showed up and shown himself as faithful over and over and over again, strengthening himself and encouraging himself? This one thing we want, God, to behold your beauty. In the letter that Paul's going to write to Philippians, to the very church that's planted where he's now jailed in the story, he says this, Philippians 3, 7 through 11. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them all as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You see a common thread here? Like five different epistles, Hebrews, Daniel, the Psalms. They have a vision that's higher than their situation. Their eyes are set on the King of kings and Lord of lords. They're, they're set on somebody far superior and above all their situations. And when they see him, when they remind themselves of who it is that they serve and who it is that's sitting at the right hand of the Father, forever living to make intercession like Jesus is actually praying for you, he's making intercession for you, Everything changes. Your circumstances and situations change when you, your perspective is lifted higher. When you get a glimpse of him and his purposes and his plans and what he's trying to do through your life and through the situation. If we can just get a glimpse, if we can remind ourselves as as in as Jesus talked to the, the church in, in Revelation, if we can remind ourselves of our first love, if we can just remember the beauty of the one that we serve, nothing would be the same. And that's why we pray. That's why we worship. To remind ourselves. We pray that he would reveal himself to us. That he is faithful, he is just. So Paul and Silas are in prison. Instead of growing cynical and angry, they're lifting their eyes to Jesus. They're singing and they're praying, which is mind-blowing. They had seen something beyond their situation. Everything they did, the mission trips, the discipleship, the endurance of all of these things, the teachings, the countless teachings in the synagogues, the endurance of the beatings, the, the dealing with false accusations, all of that, the shipwreck, shipwrecks, imprisonments, all of the list that Paul lays out, all of that was with one thing in mind. Jesus is worthy. He's worth it all. 
It's all about Jesus. Everything we do is for his glory and his name. So they pray. Because prayer was the way for them to commune and connect with Jesus and brought everything into proper perspective. So once again, they set their eyes on him, and it brings everything into perspective. They realign their circumstances with a reality that is unseen. This week at the conference, one of the teachers said this thing that I think is very telling. He said that we live in a world without vision. We live in a world that's aimless. It's you do you. And as long as what you're doing doesn't bother me, we're all good. There's no collective vision, no common goals. It's you do you. Don't tell me what I have to do. He also said this. He said the primary symptom of a life without vision is cynicism. And I thought this was really good. Cynicism is, as he said, it's the water that we swim in. Our culture is very cynical. Cynicism is the default posture of unbelief, and there's a difference between cynicism and skepticism. I think that's important to point out. Skepticism, like skeptics want to believe. They want to trust God. They want to believe. They just need some help. That's okay. Cynicism is completely different. A cynic doesn't want to believe. The default posture of cynicism is, is unbelief. The core goal of being cynical is to lower the expectation to something that's manageable. The core desire of a cynic is to, to get joy by lowering your level of disappointment. So we lower the level of disappointment. We say, I'm not going to ask for anything that I can't see or imagine. I'm not going to look past the reality of where things are at. And we lower expectations of what God can do and what community can look like so that we're not disappointed. It's a way of trying to find joy that never actually works. I'll give you an example real quick. I'm running out of time. Scripture teaches us that God is our provider, right? It's one of his names in Scripture. He's a good father, Jesus says. He, he wants to take good care of us. But the lived-out experience, in order to live with that belief and trust and faith that God is provider, you have to deal with the gap in reality that not all of your needs are met. Or maybe you have worked for something and it hasn't been taken care of. We have, there's a gap sometimes, often, between these beliefs and reality. It's a mystery. And this leaves us with two options for you as a disciple of Jesus. When there's this gap between what you believe is true, what Scripture teaches is true, and your felt reality, you have two options. We either trust God 
and live in the tension of the mystery, sit in that, learn to set our eyes on a God that's way beyond what I can understand, or we eliminate the mystery and we lower expectation of God and we find joy in this subpar reality. Those are your two options. That's how we get by in this life. We, we attempt to find joy and satisfaction and, and peace with our reality by either lowering our expectations of God or living in the mystery. We either risk everything, put all, everything on the table, and trust that God is faithful even though he's mysterious we don't understand him and his ways are beyond our ways or we completely lower the bar and we believe less and we minimize our disappointment that's not the way of Jesus that's not how discipleship works cynicism is a threat to your discipleship if you find yourself treading in cynicism that's not going to help build your faith. There's this quote. I'll read this. From David Brooks. He's a New York Times columnist. He said this. We are all fragile when we don't know what our purpose is. When we haven't thrown ourselves with abandon into a social role when we haven't committed ourselves to certain people, when we feel like a swimmer in an ocean with no edge, if you really want people to be tough, make them idealistic for some cause. Make them tender for some other person. Make them committed to some worldview that puts their temp today's temporary pain in the context of a larger hope. Emotional fragility seems like a psychological problem, but it is only a philosophical, has only a philosophical answer. People are really tough only after they have taken a leap of faith for some truth or mission or love. Once they've done that, they can withstand a lot. We live in an age when it's considered sophisticated to be disenchanted, but people who are enchanted are the real tough cookies. I think he's on to something. This is what the church is. This is what the church is supposed to be. We're a people living in a cynical world, going upstream with wide-eyed looking to our Savior, Jesus. Lifting our expectations to a God who can do far more than you can ask, think, or imagine. We're a people, the church is a people so captured by a vision of Jesus that it drives everything that we do. This is what allows Paul and Silas to pray and worship in the midst of all of that. This is what we need here as a community of discipleships. That's a community of disciples. We need a vision of Jesus. That doesn't mean being naive and ignoring life situations. Paul and Silas aren't ignoring the fact that they're 
in prison. But it means seeing the big picture, getting our perspective right. This is the gospel questions. Who is God? What has he done? Reminding ourselves, who is Jesus? What has he done? What is possible for him? Can you see him? Can you put that in your mind's eye? Can you imagine? Can you see his beauty, his glory? Where does this vision of Jesus, this prayer posture, prayer and worship, where does this take us? This is what's beautiful in this story. We only got to verse 25 so far. (laughs) The other prisoners are listening to Paul and Silas. And when a miracle happens and an earthquake shakes the prison cell and the doors are open and their chains are broken and they're set free, which is what God does. He sets people free. Somehow, Paul and Silas convince the other prisoners not to leave. And the jailer who is convinced he's going to die, so to protect his own honor, he runs in to, to throw himself on his own sword. And Paul and Silas stop him. That's the miracle of this story. Paul and Silas, who were beaten falsely, thrown in jail, falsely accused, strapped to a torture device, and God shows up and seemingly answers their prayer and and sets them free. And what do they do? They stay. Because there's a person who needs to know the truth. They needs to know needs to know the gospel. This is really important. Sometimes there'll be open doors for you that you're not supposed to walk through. The prison doors were open, the chains were broken, and the right thing to do was to stay. Because there's a jailer and his family that will become an epicenter for a church as a beachhead for what God was going to do in Europe. So they stayed. Jailer comes in and he asks the question. He says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? We looked at this a couple weeks ago. The, the amazing thing here is that they, not only does, do they present the gospel to this guy, he cleans their wounds, he cares for them, he invites them into his home. The guy who was probably beating them the day before, for sure strapping them into a torture device, is now considering them brothers. And that's the church. That's the way this works. That's the way the family of God works. The rest of the story is amazing. I don't have time to get into all of it. But I think the thing to take home today, the thing to remember for us, 
is that despite what's going on in your life, despite the circumstances, the situations, your frustrations, your irritations, can you see Jesus? Where is he at? Can you lift your eyes above your circumstances and your situations to see the perspective from him sitting at the right hand of the Father, forever living to make intercession? Like, he cares about your needs way more than you do. Can we get a perspective that's beyond our situations? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this great cloud of witnesses, these stories from the scriptures of men and women who were captivated and enchanted by something beyond themselves. God, I pray that that would be the truth for us in this family, that in this community that we would be a group of people so gripped by the beauty and the majesty of King Jesus that we would lift our eyes off of our situations, our circumstances, and our environment, our frustrations with coworkers and family, our sicknesses, our debts. We would look to Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, that we would set our eyes on King Jesus, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, forever making intercession for us. Jesus, help us to see you in your glory. I pray that you would remind us of that first love, our first glimpse of King Jesus. God, help us to remember. Help us to follow you and to serve you, to walk in your ways, despite what comes. In Jesus' name.